in our church here in, in, uh, in Elam, what we're doing. Um, actually, I just feel the need. For those of you that are visiting, because I know there's some of you that are visiting today. The Elam church meets in an Anglican, Anglican church building, which we share with them. And then once a month or so, we gather with another church that meets in another part of the city to worship together. We are like a walking, talking ecumenical project. Um, we're, gonna be, we're looking over these weeks at um, just preparing ourselves for Easter, really, and, and looking through some of the passages that lead us up to the brilliant event of Easter and then thereafter. If the voice cracks, it's not emotion this week. I want to read from Mark chapter 9, verse 2. It's a story of the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they've done to him everything they wished, just as it's written about him. Story of the Transfiguration. The Gospels are there for us. And uh, the Gospels do two things, I think, at least two things. One of the things that Gospels are there for is to, to show you um, what God looks like when he comes incarnate. What does God look like? What sort of life would God live? And, and the gospel accounts, the four gospels, are there in one level to say, don't, you don't need to guess about God. You don't need to do your best assumptions about the sort of God that you might worship. You can be much more confident than that. Because in Jesus, that's what God looks like. And I think that, um, you know, you've probably been in conversations like I have with people who don't believe and, they, and you say, well, what don't you believe? And then they start outlining what they don't believe because they think that's what God's like. And you end up saying, well, yeah, if I thought that about God, I wouldn't believe it either. And it's like when you're starting to wrestle with who God is, then the gospel accounts are there that say, actually, take a look at Jesus. Because if you look at Jesus, that's the sort of God you've got. And we can... We can make all assumptions, we can do all sorts of things in religious circles, 
But actually, it's Jesus you need to get a handle on to understand what God's like. And then, the logical sort of next step is, the Gospels say, so what does it mean to be a disciple of this Jesus, this God incarnate? What does it mean to begin to walk in his path? And when you read the Gospels, the really good thing, and particularly if you read Mark's Gospel, the, the constant theme about being a disciple in Mark's Gospel is that they're rubbish. They're hopeless. They get pretty much everything wrong. And when Mark wrote his Gospel, and, and tradition says, and it's a good tradition, it's a strong tradition, there's lots of evidence for it, that Peter, the, the Apostle Peter, sort of, um, dictated or, or gave the gospel to Mark who would write it down. So it's not Mark who's reflecting on it, it's probably Peter, this great apostle. And Peter's going, you know what, when we were with Jesus, most of the time, we were confused. Now I don't know if that's any reassurance for some of you this morning, <laughs> who are trying to work out what does it mean to follow God. Because in one level, you get a sort of like some people who give the impression that you should be able to get it all right every time, and if you get it mixed up, or you get mistaken, or you just get things wrong, then somehow you're rubbish, uh, a Christian. And uh, Mark's Gospel says, no, 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 no. Being a disciple, most of the time, is being, is being kind of overwhelmed by Jesus, being taken away from all that you thought was true. Being a disciple of Jesus often will lead you to a place where you don't know what's going on. So the story itself is pretty well known. But actually, if you look at how Mark constructs it, where does he place it? Well, look back at chapter 8, 22. It starts there, really. There's a new bit of the journey towards Jerusalem. And Jesus and the disciples go to a place called Bethsaida. And something really odd happens. There's a blind man there, and Jesus heals him. That's not odd. Jesus tends to do that stuff quite regularly. But what's really odd is this. That um, the blind man, verse 23, they take him by the hand, they lead him outside the village, and he, they, when Jesus spits on the man's eyes, and he puts his hands on him, Jesus said, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. In other words, I can see, but I can't see clearly. I can get the gist, but actually, it just, they just look like trees. They're like uh, some of us who are at a certain age now, where we've got glasses, but we're not sure whether to have them on or off, um, because it's like, it just don't quite work. Some of us are really grateful that our arms are just long enough that we can hold our Bibles away from us to see properly, because it all goes. And what had happened, and it's really strange, it's the one time when almost, on one level, a miracle didn't seem to quite work out properly. And so what did Jesus do? Well, um, page. once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were open, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Now, in other words, this little... Air, this sort of little group of stories, they're framed on the one hand by someone saying, I'm blind, Jesus heals them, but the first thing is, oh, I can't quite see it properly. Jesus touches again, now I can see clearly. 
The next bit of this story is Peter with his disciple, uh, Jesus with his disciples saying, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. Da-ding! You got it right. And then Jesus predicts his death. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to die. I'm not going to let it happen. Ah, you got it wrong. Jesus saying to his disciples, if you're going to come after me, you've got to follow the cross. You've got to come with me. You've got to take up your cross and and follow me. And then we go to the Mount of Transfiguration, where they're going to see something really bright. But of course, Peter's going to put his foot in it again. And there's only three of the disciples up the hill with him. And then they're going to come down, and they're going to find the rest of the disciples trying to cast out a demon out of a boy who's so torn apart, and they can't do it. Jesus has to sort it out. And then he predicts his death again. And so it goes on until you get to the end of chapter 10. And there you have another blind man being healed. Bartimaeus, by the roadside, shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on him. He calls to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And Jesus says to Bartimaeus in verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he receives his sight and follows Jesus along the road. He becomes a disciple. So can you see what Mark's trying to do here? This is all about, can you see clearly? It starts with uh, someone who can't quite get it, but Jesus has to sort of intervene and gets it so he can really see clearly because it's really important that this is sort of framed by these two miracles of sight because what's really important for you and me as disciples is can you really see who Jesus is or do you get half an idea and then make him into your own image? Do you get a half idea about Jesus and then, then think, well, actually, I'll just make the rest up myself? No, 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 no. Jesus is really concerned. If you're going to be a disciple following Jesus on the road, you've got to be able to see it. You've got to be able to get it. So we have this story of Jesus on this mountain, this high mountain, where Moses had received the law, where Elijah had been on Mount Carmel fighting, uh, in spiritual terms, against the prophets of Baal. And here, Jesus is on the mountain with Elijah, who's been in spiritual warfare with the powers, with Moses, who's been on the mountain with God getting the law. Jesus is there. And then Jesus, and it's a really unusual word, Jesus is transfigured. Transfiguration is this idea that something from who he actually was became apparent. There's something about the reality of Jesus, bright, burning bright, is seen by everybody. And suddenly, he starts to have this blinding light coming from him. It's not that something's happened to Jesus on the mountain, that he wasn't in the valley. It's, the difference is, is that they can see it. That Jesus, who, in many senses, in the valley, it's easy to misunderstand. Who do you think I am? Well, some people say Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. Who do you think I am? Well, I think you're the Messiah. Suddenly, on the mountain, there is no doubt. He blazes with light. Not that something's happened to Jesus. It's almost like something's happened 
to the disciples who can see it. Jesus always was this glory, always carrying the weight of glory on him. Can you see it? And you get this brilliant moment where Peter says, this is awesome. I never want to leave. Let's put up some shelters. I tell you what, I can't do much here, but I can build some stuff. And a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son. Listen to him. Or another way, shut up. Peter, stop speaking. Stop trying to manipulate. Stop trying to manage what's going on here. Peter, you are not center stage. Peter, you don't need to do anything. And I think that's interesting. There's something around this idea of being a disciple. And after we've been a disciple for quite a while, there's something about who's actually center stage. And what happens, and it's quite subtle, is we start off being, it's all about Jesus. But then actually, it gradually becomes all about us, and we want God to help us. Because we've got an idea of what we want to do. We've got a plan. We've got a purpose. We've got a strategy. And God, we'd love it if you could help us. And Peter on the mountain has to come to the fact Uh, come to terms with the fact, Peter, you're not centre stage. It's not about you. There is nothing you need to do right now on this mountain. Just listen. Now, I know that that sounds sort of like really easy, but I've got to tell you, when I was thinking about this sermon today, I'm praying it over during the week. It's like, so where am I going to land this in a minute? Well, I've got to tell you, I'm not going to, you don't need to do anything because of what's going on here. If we reflect on this faithfully, this is not about you needing to go and somehow summon up more faith or summon up more energy or summon up anything. It's like, can you just take a moment and see things really clearly as they are? Not as you fear they might be. These sort of events are very rare in, in, in the New Testament. They do happen, though. They happen to uh, Stephen when he's being stoned. And uh, as the stones are falling upon him, um, he looks up and he says, I can see Jesus. And he's seated on the right hand of God. This is not the thing to do when people are already stoning you for being a religious maniac, because the stones just start to rain down even more. It happens to Paul on the road to Damascus where a blinding light literally blinds him and knocks him off his horse. But really interestingly, it also happens um, in Revelation when John is in exile. And he has a vision of Jesus. But interesting what he says to his churches then. He explains what he can see at the beginning of Revelation. And then he goes... Can you come with me? He writes to the seven churches and then says, can you see that there's a door in heaven that stands open because I can see into the heavenlies and I can see what's actually going on here. Now, this can all sound remarkably mystical and of course, in one sense, it is. But what this does to you and I, and it does it to me, some of us in the room pride ourselves on being really practical. We're really down-to-earth people. Some of us might be a little cynical. And uh, so our first thought is, 
it's sort of a, a general cynicism, but we see ourselves as being down-to-earth sort of people. Do you recognize yourself there? And every now and again, the New Testament comes and goes, you're in danger of living life on a very flat level. I want you to see what's actually going on. It's like this. If you think this is it, then actually the sort of the focal length of what you see to be real will be very flat. If you think there's a God, it gets a little further away. If you think there's a Jesus, it's a bit further. And so your focal length begins to sort of develop and you start to see shades of reality, dimensions of life that actually take on a form of its own. So you're looking at the same scene, but actually you're seeing it through different lenses. You're seeing it through different dimensions. And if you see yourself as a disciple following Jesus, there's even more. Now the danger of all this is that once you begin to talk about the layers of reality of what you can see, you're always in danger of looking like a bit of a fruitcake. All right, which is a technical Greek term. But on the mountain, the disciples saw reality. They saw Jesus burning brightly before them. And I wonder where you've been this week. I wonder in all your business and all the stuff you've been doing, have you, have you had those layers of reality? On the one hand, this is what I'm doing. On another level, this is what God's doing. On another level, this is how God's using me. On another level, this is what God wants to do with all of this stuff. Or has it just been, this is just what I do? It's difficult some days to see it. I was interested to see that this week, Google Glasses have been launched. Phil's now shrugging shoulders. Oh, it's old news. Um, but I'm expecting Phil to come to church with them on. Very, very. He, he will be at the cutting edge of this new technology. I, and I'm, I'm, I, was, I was praying that Phil wouldn't be here today because what I'm going to say next is probably wrong. But um, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, but it seems to me, as someone who doesn't understand all of this, but what this does is this little device in front of your eyes will be a device that literally you will see what's going on, but you'll be streaming information about what it means. Now, for some of you, this sounds like heaven, and for others of you, it sounds like the other place. It's very interesting. It's augmented reality, they call it. Augmented reality. That you're looking at the same scene, but now you've got the stream of What's actually going on here? What's it mean? What's the story? What's the bigger story? Now, you can do it, or you, I think you can actually do this if you really want to try it already. If you, there's a, a Google app that if you hold your phone up uh, against buildings, it'll, it'll link with Google and it'll start giving you information. I'm looking for Phil. Just keep on nodding. Keep me confidence. <laughs> now, for some of you, you go, oh, I don't need all that. Some of you are still on a phone, uh, a Nokia 9510, that, you know, quaintly, you use for phone calls. How quaint? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, Pat, if you hold your phone up, it's going to work. But um, for some of you, you've got, I don't want to live like, like that. And I can understand that. I don't want to live life like that. I want to live with what I can see. But I think this is a really interesting image of what's going on in the New Testament. You're looking at the same thing. But actually, there's augmented reality. 
Can you actually see what it all means? Can you actually understand what God's doing here? Can you actually see beyond what you can see? So let me take you back to the mountain. The brightness of Jesus. The dignity of who he is. You know, in, uh, in Jerusalem, in Palestine at that time, it was really easy to look at Jesus and simply see as another wandering rabbi. Says some interesting stuff, looks a little revolutionary. But for other people, they had augmented reality. And they saw so much more. What you see is so important. And the call to listen to him is so important. This is what it means to be a disciple, actually, to see differently and to listen to him and be obedient to what he tells you. What does it actually mean to be a disciple? Is is learning to be obedient to Jesus in the place where you already are. That's what it means to be a disciple. Asking the questions, God, what, what does it mean for me to follow it in the way here where I already am? I've seen something of the glory of God. I'm learning to live obediently in the path that's right here in front of me. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in the second letter, he does something quite interesting because he then starts to speak about what the Spirit is wanting to do for you. And you've got to remember that the church in Corinth was a nightmare. So they weren't all sort of polished up people who'd got it all right. They were really far from that. But in the, towards the end of the third chapter, he does something really interesting. He says, when you and I, when you and I come and we're involved in this Christian life, when we're involved in knowing who Jesus is, in seeing God, when we come and we worship, this is what Paul says, we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed. And he uses the same word, it's a really unusual word, transfigured. We are being transfigured into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I think Paul does something really intriguing here. He says, and it seems to suggest, this is not a metaphor he's dealing with, he seems to suggest that those of us who worship, those of us who pray, those of us who are coming into God's presence, those of us who are longing to be a disciple, working out what it means, actually, it starts to tell. Your face, your face reflects, reflects the Lord's glory. And you're being transfigured into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I wonder when people look at you, what do they see? On Wednesday I was in Swansea and I, I was in, stayed in Cardiff but I was in Swansea for the day and so I took the train to meet someone in Swansea that I'd never met before and he hadn't met me. And because we are useless at organizing anything. We didn't have each other's mobile numbers. So, but I said to the guy I was staying with, how will I know who he is? And this was the strategy, they told me. Neil, go to the station and look lost. And someone will find you. 
Now, to be honest, looking lost and gormless is a, a look I've practiced over many years, <laughs> and I didn't need to practice. Um, it was a little odd, because I was going up to various, uh, well, to one other man, and said, are you looking for me? And I thought, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> um, so I just went back to the strategy of looking lost. And then I saw someone coming in to a crowded station, and I thought, it's him. It's him. So I went to him, and I said, are you looking for me? And he said, yeah, how do you know? I said, you just look like a Baptist minister. <laughs> no regalia, no sign, no fish, no cross. Seriously. But I was scanning a crowded station looking for a Christian. I found one. Now, I don't want to make too much of this other than what Paul makes of it. Paul says, on the mountain, Jesus showed who the reality of who he was. And what's the Spirit doing now with you and me? He's showing the reality of who you already are. There's something radiating from you. We are carriers of reflected glory. You don't need to do anything. There's nothing you can work up here. You certainly don't need to find factor number seven Christian face paint. Well, I think in America there is probably such a stuff available. You don't need to summon it up. It's actually this is a spirit who's doing something with you, who's changing you from the inside out, who's enabling you to be a reflector of the glory of God, the reality that's already there. Can you see Jesus? Can you see what he's done this week? Do you get the layers of reality? Can you sense what God is doing in one another?